0: Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 3. I find this funny that we have done Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. We're taking a chapter a, a week, and by a week, in a morning. And by in a morning, I find it funny that y- you know, some people would be like, well, you should you know, keep teaching or whatever you want to call it, the sermon to 30 minutes. Get out of here. And if you're going to do a whole chapter and you're going to do that in 30 minutes, you're going to miss so much. So I am not unaware, and I literally had this in my notes, I'm not unaware that I can take some of, most of, or even an hour sometimes in my teaching. I'm not unaware of that, and it doesn't bother me. If it bothers you, feel free to raise your hand, and you can tell me, and I'll uh, write it down somewhere and then not do anything with it, Um, uh, because we're going to do what we need to do, and it's all meant to be conversational anyways, and so always within that, if we have questions, if we need to dig in, I'm going to try. In go slow this morning, though, purposefully, because we have a lot. If you have been around the church, if you grew up in a Christian home or some semblance of that, likely Genesis 3, you, you're like, I, I know this story. Uh, I've been told this story. And I, myself, uh, would think, as I think of my church history, um, when it comes to this, though, I would actually argue I've, I've only heard one pastor teach through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. I've heard many sermons reference a verse or two or reference something in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. But to dig in and teach and unpack it, and not so much. So we want to do that and do that well. Um, so what we have been doing is, if, if you've been with us, we've essentially given, in these first three weeks, an overview of Genesis and ways. And then we dug into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And the hope in these first three weeks, the hope is that you will understand where you begin the story matters Where you begin the story matters, how you read the Bible, how you read the story matters, and then our view of humanity, which is a lot of what we focused on last week, matters. What is our view of humanity? These things are hopefully what we've been kind of sitting in. And then to just kind of move us in towards where we'll be, the story begins with the divine creating order out of chaos. The divine crafting a creation that is first and fundamentally called good. And that word good in the Hebrew is the word tov. Go ahead and say tov. Tov in this wide-reaching meaning, it means becoming. It's just getting started. It isn't a moral kind of definition put on it. We think, oh, is it good or is it bad? And we think morality. Good in the Hebrew means it is becoming. It's fresh, it's green. This is what tov means. Fresh, green, growing, becoming. So it's heading in a direction, and it is. God call it good, wonderful. This is as I wanted it to be, but it's going to continue becoming. So then, blessing is spoken over all creation, including the pinnacle of the divine's work, humanity, who are also first and fundamentally called good. And in fact, it says it is meod tov or tov meod, very good. Um, Then, the original vocation of this originally blessed humanity is to cultivate Cultivate, and that word was radah that we looked at in Genesis 2. Radah and steward, which is kabosh. Kabosh. And so it's to cultivate and steward creation in all of its becoming. Are you with me? Some of you? humanity is commanded, directed, and empowered to till, guide, and steward creation in all of its becoming, which is part of humanity's becoming, is to have this vocation. Humanity's identity, and we zeroed in on this, is whose we are, and that we are first called good and blessed. That's a part of our identity, and it's kind of the main part of our identity. This is crucial for every single one of us because there are endless competing voices in our world, in our all the timeness that tell us we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough, we don't make enough money, we don't have enough things, we don't have big enough house, we don't have enough when it comes to this. All of this you don't do enough. As it pertains to our identity, those are all Lies. So the divine creator loves every single person unconditionally and eternally. Not because of what we do or what we don't do, but because we are of the divine and from the divine. Are you with me? It's really important because this is where the story begins. Genesis 1 and 2. So anytime someone starts the story in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, or begins the story by saying, you're bad, you're not, you're whatever, you're broken, you're fallen, you're corrupt, you're, whoa, 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 I get that. But is that where the story begins? No. So let's start the story in the beginning, please, and we'll get there, and we're gonna spend some time in Genesis 3. All of that unfolded in the first two chapters of Genesis. That's where the story begins, and spoiler alert, ready, we gotta do this, The restoration of this originally blessed beginning is where the story ends. If you were to take chaos and sin out of the Bible, if you were to do that, you are left with what we know as four chapters, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. If you take sin or chaos out of the Bible, that is what you are left with. And it ends then, this is the spoiler, with the divine putting back together, restoring, renewing, and reconciling this good beginning, this creation that God called good. It is a restoration act, it's renewing it and putting it back together. So that's really important. Then I had pointed out the first couple of weeks, the central story to the Hebrew scriptures. The central story of the Hebrew scriptures, or what is often referred to as the Old Testament, is the Exodus. This story that we know as the Exodus, in which uh, the divine partners with a fella named Moses and rescues the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. This is the central story. Everything in the Torah, towards the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, everything uh, that comes before the Exodus is essentially saying, oh, this is how we got to the Exodus, and anything after it is reflecting on the Exodus, and they're now going, let's look at this and, and unpack it a bit further. A lot of that you find in Deuteronomy. Uh, A reminder then that people are loved and rescued in the story because this God always hears the cry of the oppressed and the hurting. They cry out and God says, I have heard the cry of this people that are enslaved and he does something about it. Which all of this raises the question, what disrupted the original goodness? What disrupted that? Well, welcome to the ominous Genesis 3. I could have Lisa on the keyboard. Like you need that ominous music when we're like, Genesis 3, oh, here we go. Now, um, when it comes to this ancient, rather wild story known as the Bible, curiosity and wrestling are so needed. Questions, questions, questions. Wrestle, dig in. It's really important. But to set up chapter 3, Uh, We need to do a little bit of review. We need to at least grab a few pieces of Genesis 2 that will help us fill in some blanks as we head to Genesis 3. So we're gonna begin in Genesis chapter two with verses eight and nine. And this is from the Tree of Life version. And this is the Messianic Jewish uh, society that puts together the Tree of Life. And why this is important is because they work in key Hebrew words that basically say if you can learn these handful of Hebrew words, it will help you better understand the Bible. And so um, we're going to start with the TLV, uh, Tree of Life version. Then Adonai Elohim uh, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And we looked at that word formed. Uh, It's a key word. Then Adonai Elohim caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was desirable to look at and good for food. Now the Tree of Life was in the middle of the garden and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now I'm going to point out that phrasing is important because what it actually is saying grammatically and how it is in Hebrew is the tree of life is in the middle and by the way there is also a second tree not in the middle it's just saying there's another tree we're going to point out the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Only one tree is given placement in the middle, and it is the tree of life. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says this, Then Adonai Elohim commanded the man, saying, From all the trees of the garden you are most welcome to eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat. For when you eat from it, you most assuredly will eat die. And one more, Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now here's the thing, it's fascinating, the entire story of Adam and Eve is no more than 25 verses long, yet all of human history reflects back on this story. It's really quite something, in part because Hebrew literature, and this is really important, it employs various techniques to offer several layers of meaning. In 25 verses, the story is massive because they write in layers. There's all kinds of depth to it. One such technique in the Hebrew is called, in English, it's called the leading word leading word. In, in other words, it's, there is a word that's repeated over and over within a story, within a chapter or whatever it is. There's a leading word and what it's asking you, pleading with you to do is this word is asking you to dig deeper. It's doing something more. Pay attention to this word. So we're going to look at that. The leading word in Genesis 3 is naked. That's the leading word in this narrative. Hang on to that. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. But that's the leading word in this text. With just a few verses, those who have spent time, and I know in a church setting, uh, Christian home or whatever it is, you likely have a particular narrative in mind as it pertains to Genesis 3. What I'm asking and hoping you can do this morning is suspend that narrative so that we can have this story get a fresh look this morning, a fresh hearing. Can we do that? I know it's difficult, but we're gonna give it a shot. Okay, we have a garden that's replete with attractive, nutritious, desirable, and delectable food that is ever ready at hand. That's what we see here. And then we have two specific trees that are introduced. The tree of life, which is mentioned first, and then the tree of knowledge second. I mentioned last week that the order in which people or things are introduced in the scriptures is a way of the storyteller saying, this has significance, there is a meaning to this, and in fact, there is a prominence to this being listed first. What is the first tree that's listed? tree of life is to hold the most prominence here, and then, it, and it's the only tree that's given a specific location in the middle of the garden, and so we're going to hang on to that. This kind of gets us going, so as we approach chapter three now, um, what, what I think is important, because there's a lot here, we're going to do this a little bit differently, we need to read the entire chapter together. But if we're going to read the entire chapter together, we can't, you can't have me just sitting here reading because very quickly my voice becomes white noise for some of you, maybe already, uh, like all sorts of things that are not good. Uh, So we need a professional, world-renowned, famous, like amazing reader to help kind of make this come alive for us. So for that, we need to welcome our friend Ruth Jones.
1: Thanks, Wally. Good to be here.
0: Professional, world renowned, famous, all of that's just true.
1: I mean, professional implies some sort of payment or reimbursement, but (laughs) we'll talk about that later. (laughs)
0: That's on, that's recorded now. I know. I'm going to have to do something about that. (laughs) All right. Um, Ruth and I are going to, we're going to have some fun. And we're going to try and make this as conversational as we can. So what Ruth like, you you all can give her a hug later or whatever. She prefers fist bump or whatever. Because she's going to put up with me for some time here where I will kind of pause, stop, interrupt. Like, oh, hold on, wait a second. Yep. And sometimes it might be she says a word and I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. That kind of thing. So she's, she's daring and fantastic. So um, we're going to start in Genesis 3.1. And now we're going to be in the NRSV, the new revised standard version that was updated updated just this past November 2022. They released their new with archaeology archeolo- and the best scholarship. They're always working to make it the best, closest, literal to it. So anyways, we're going to start there then. I just want to let you all know, references are important. Resources are important. All right, Ruth,
1: ready? All right, I'm ready. Here we go. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the, servant was, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. Pause.
0: Um, here's already where the English language withholds from us layers of meaning. The word... Crafty in the Hebrew is the word arum. Go ahead and say arum. 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 Yes. Now here's the thing. It can mean it can mean crafty or cunning, but most often, in every other time it's used in Genesis chapter three, its dominant translation, its dominant meaning is used. And guess what that is? Naked. It actually is our lead word. So it would read, now the serpent was more naked than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And if you're like, wow, that's our lead word. Something else must be going on, or there's a lot going on here. Yep, there is. And we need to hang on to that. So this is a big deal. The serpent, and this is so how we understand it. The serpent is going to use the naked truth to deceive Eve which will strip Adam and Eve of both their naked innocence. And here's the thing. The serpent is naked and deceptive. So there it holds these two opposites together in the serpent. So it's going to raise, of course, the question, why? Have you ever, and this is the thing, we have to ask kind of questions that are basic, but we skip over them because we, we know, we've heard, why would the serpent want to deceive Eve? Because if, if, like if you knew someone was lying or deceiving or whatever, if they were doing that, we would go, why did they do that? There's a reason, right? You don't just do it because you, ah, watch this. I'll get them so that, what? We'd still go, well, because you're a terrible person? They'd wonder, What is the reason? The text does not explicitly give a reason, but the context does. After the text in Genesis 2 informs us of the two trees in the garden, we are given an interesting twist in the story. Genesis 2, 18 and
1: 20. Can I go ahead? Yes. All right. <laughs> then the Lord God said, It is not good. Not what? Tove.
0: Tove.
1: That the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner.
0: So this, reading this, this should strike us as odd or fantastical, as in like fantasy-like, right? Because what you have is the divine is parading animals in front of the man, and the man is giving the animals names, but also it says he did this so that he is looking for a what? A companion, a partner, Right? And this has happened, and the man comes to the conclusion, yeah, I gave them names, but none of them, it says within this, I did not find something that would be my partner. There's your motivation. Are you ready? The animal world has been deemed not adequate to be humanity's fulfilling companion. So the serpent will show the woman who is capable of being the man's partner. I'll trick her. I will show you the serpent. I will show you, woman, that I am more clever, I am smarter, and I am, should be, the partner of the man. You see that? This, like, this is working with it. So this now sets up like, oh, and we're going to deceive the woman, and we're going to do that. There's all kinds of rabbinic, um, Midrash commentary on this they have all sorts of things around this we do not have time to get into but there's your motivation Let's I, let's
1: I will continue. Let's go.
0: We'll keep going. We're okay. Technically we're at verse one still I think yeah
1: verse verse mm-hmm. one He said to the woman pause
0: Apparently ready how many of you asked a question this serpent talks and thinks and it's not said in the text that this is odd, weird, or magical. Do you read the story and just go, yeah, that's fine. You know what I mean? Because how many times in, in kids' church, whatever you want to call it, like kids think, as soon as you get into the story, some kid raises his hand and goes, wait a minute, did you just say a, a serpent talks and thinks? Come, and you go, yes. Like, and you're like annoyed. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. We I mean, were just, the story. what, what? <laughs> and then the kid, like, and they're like, oh, really? That's what happens? Okay, I'm, now I kind of don't want to go to the zoo, or I do want to go to the zoo. And you're like, oh, come on. And you're like, what's well, a, it's a question. Thinking, talking, serpent. Okay, uh, this is what, my point in some ways is, those who argue only for a literal reading of the text Good luck holding the attention of the modern rational mind. Right? If you're going to say, no, this is, this is how it is. And by the way, in ancient Near Eastern storytelling, the serpent is the most common metaphor, picture for deception and evil. Not just in our story, if you go near Eastern literature, all sorts of creation stories, all sorts of other writings, they use a serpent as a symbol, a picture for deception and evil. So when these first hearers, listeners, readers, they would go, oh yeah, deception, serpent, of course. That's what we do. Okay. Okay. I think we okay. okay. Let's try it again.
1: We'll try again. We'll see how far we get. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, as one Which, does, as speaking one does. to a serpent. This is yeah. all
0: fine. Fine. You all, I mean, you probably talk to your cats and dogs, but.
1: Right. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree That is in the middle of the garden nor shall you touch it or you shall die
0: pause now if we just let the text speak let's let this thing go I, i want ruth to read this again this woman's response to the serpent and i want us to think about what's going on this by the way she's talking to a thinking and talking serpent
1: yeah the response to the speaking serpent yep the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but god said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden nor shall you touch it or you shall die Ooh. eve
0: now here's the thing again when we let us be eve just stated what has been they have been instructed to do and not to do correct How many people have been taught or hold to the understanding that to eat from the forbidden tree would all of a sudden give them the intellectual knowledge of bad and good? We were just told in the text that she stated, here's what we can do, here's what we can't do. She knows right and wrong. She just said that. That is not what is happening here. Is an intellectual knowledge of good and bad that they will gain somehow like pulling a lever or it gets downloaded like an app if they take a bite from something. That's not what's going on here. The text just told us that. She knows if, if Eve did not already have the capacity to intellectually know good and bad, then she's off the hook for eating from the tree, right? If she eats from the tree and you're like, oh, you you weren't supposed to do that. I didn't know. I didn't know there was good and bad. Do you see how that doesn't make any sense? But somehow we have pitched that, thrown that idea out there. I don't know. It drives me nuts. But she, because she stated, (laughs) I'm aware of this. Something else is going on. It's blinking at us. Pay attention. Something bigger, wider, deeper is going on. So to help us dig into that, uh, we need to look at the text From what the divine said, because from what Eve just said to the serpent, and what the divine instructed in Genesis 2, they're not the same thing, are they? Oh no, 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 there's some differences here. So, we'll go to Genesis 2, 9, and get the divine word, if you will, first.
1: Now the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then... Verses um, 16 and 17. Then Adonai Elohim commanded the man, saying, From all the trees of the garden, you are most welcome to eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For when you eat from it, you most assuredly will die.
0: Ah. So in chapter 2, the tree of life is the only tree in the middle, based on the phrasing, and they are most welcome to eat from every tree in the garden except one. Except the one. The consequences of making that choice is you most assuredly will die. It does not say you will gain some sort of intellect that you did not have. Nope. Eve, in response to the serpent, places the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle. Notice how she did that? Oh, we're not supposed to touch or eat the tree from the tree in the middle she places the tree in the middle and she adds she adds you can't we can't even touch it was that the divine word nope yeah. uh the uh, uh in rabbinic literature they call this building a fence around the command which is and okay as parents do we do this mm-hmm. how many parents like your kids just you're goofing around hey stop goofing around don't even look at your brother, <laughs> at your brother. don't touch them how? We, we, I've, I may have heard somewhere before while I'm driving, look out the window. Don't even look to your left. Right? We have to put boundaries around rules that keep the rules just moving bigger. Okay. Thanks, Eve. You're... Oh, my goodness. She also, Eve, uh, does not give a specific timeline for death. Uh, And she implies probability rather than certainty of death, in her language. In just these few discrepancies, I hope your curiosity app that's like flashing on your system of your heart, if you will, like, whoa, something else is going on here. And here's the thing, it's not that Eve is lying to the serpent, but something is going on here that we should be paying attention to. Rabbi David Foreman offers the language of Eve being taken off guard by the serpent, and he chalks Eve's distortions up to how things looked to her. He uses the language of, in the eye of the beholder. That's how Eve is pitching it to the serpent. This is how I heard these commands. This is how I heard the instructions. In a different light. anyone play the telephone game you know this game where we get you know 15 people in a circle and i whisper something to ruth and then she whispers the dante and then it goes around the circle and then it gets back and i said to ruth we should go to lunch afterwards and then it comes around and it says we should go to spain next week and you're like that's not what i said to you and that, how did that go around? But somebody was hearing something else and then all of a sudden it's like somebody hears Spain and then someone says, that sounds great, we should do that. And then someone's like, but I've got basketball tomorrow, so maybe next week. And it just gets twisted around. That's, there you go. How about more clearly, we are being introduced to the mechanics mechanics of desire. In the importance of choice as it pertains to desire in the story. Because passion and desire are not inherently bad or evil. They are what ignites that um, idea of creating and producing. Creating and producing, right? But we are asked within this, how, how or what is it that informs how you're going to create, produce, and steward. What is that? The direction of that. So will it be, in this question, will it be the divine that does that? And by the time of this written version that gets collected by the way, Torah, Torah, the scriptures, is understood as the guide for humanity within the will of the divine. They would at least have the Torah, the first five books. Or the question is, so will it be that that guides you? Or will it be selfish ambition Self-gratification, or what will become known as the sinful nature—is that going to be your guide? Are you with me? Yep. Because the story is just starting to get a little bit kind of juicy here. And uh, just so we're clear, we we need to keep going because we're three verses in. Three, verses. three, right?
1: Three. Yep. Three verses so we in. Went we're s- minute, so we we went, went back to two for a minute, and we went back to two bit three, We'll yep.
0: speed up. But do you see the ridiculousness of trying to do a whole chapter in the four hours we have this morning? All right. Verse four.
1: Verse four. And five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pause.
0: Is the serpent lying? Nope. Certainly raising doubts as to whether or not God is holding out on a divine attribute. Because it says you won't die, but you will be like God. So there is this kind of, are you, is God holding out on you kind of thing? But not lying. Not lying. We're going to keep, keep reading.
1: So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Good
0: for food, a delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. You see some things are, there is an aesthetic pleasure going on. What
1: will she do with that? Sorry, go. She took of its fruit and ate. Aha. Uh And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her.
0: Who was with her? Anybody ever been taught, like, with way to go thanks a lot eve it was not adam's fault he's there he is standing right there with his big mouth shut
1: <laughs> until it's open until it's open to, to put the fruit in it yeah, yeah.
0: So let's not let this character off the hook yeah.
1: then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked
0: uh-huh so those key words knew naked
1: And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves.
0: Fascinating. Now, here's the thing. Similar to the Gilgamesh epic, everybody remember this from school? Putting on clothes is a symbol of abandoning the wild, and it's a characteristic of normal civilization. There is in this part a bit of a loss of uniqueness. Now we're just going to get dressed. Now we're going to be normal, which is actually kind of like a sadness.
1: When they heard the sound.
0: So this word sound is the word kol. Go ahead and say kol. Kol. It is most often voice. When they heard the voice of the Lord God.
1: Walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Breeze,
0: pause. Breeze is the word ruach. Go ahead and say ruach. Ruach. Spirit. So in the beginning when it said the ruach was hovering over the deep. The spirit of God. So Ruach here. So there's apparently a time in which you're kind of hanging out in the spirit.
1: I'm just going to do that sentence again. Okay. They heard the sound, the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, the spirit. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence.
0: Presence is the word panim. Go ahead and say panim. Panim. Face. Face. They hid themselves from the
1: face. The face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you?
0: Where are you? Is this a question for the divine of geography? No. This is not geography. This is the divine asking the question to Adam and Eve, essentially though too where are you you have stepped out of relationship emotionally spiritually where where did you go because you're not connected with me you're not humming with me right now are you are you with me okay he said adam
1: i heard the sound of you in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself
0: i was afraid because i His reasoning is, because I was naked, but I heard the sound, and again, in Hebrew can also be translated, get this, I obeyed your voice. Which is irony and the opposite of the truth. Leading to hiding, which is tantamount to an admission of guilt. I hid because I'm guilty. This also highlights that what is weighing on Adam and what he states is his reason for hiding is his nakedness and that really is about a whole new experience that he has called shame shame kind of a big deal
1: he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat the man said the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit from the tree And I ate.
0: And the blame game begins. But do you see where the first blame is? The woman uh, who you gave to me, the first blame is Adam saying to God, you gave gave her to me. So first it's on you, God. Then she's the one that took the fruit and gave it to me. So your problem, her problem, she did. You've probably never heard that before, right? When you're asked, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, but she did. Yeah, but he... Oh, oh, so it's their thing, abdicating responsibility. I don't know that as a parent. Okay, Uh, so there is this pointing the fingers to God, then her, and it's actually she picked it, and, and all of a sudden the whole thing is beginning to unravel.
1: Then the Lord God said to the woman... What is this that you have done?
0: I love this because notice how the divine is approaching this. Questions. Questions. An invitation. Will you be honest? Will you confess? Will you come close to me in being honest? That's what's... Because the reality is that is an escape from shame. That is moving away from that which erodes the soul, if you can be honest. Okay.
1: The woman said the serpent tricked me and i ate
0: more finger pointing adam says well god you gave me this woman problem and then she did and then eve says well yeah but the serpent you see what's happened no one's like hey you know i'm going to take some responsibility here
1: the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures Upon your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life.
0: Now again, just some real obvious kind of things we highlight. Now you'll crawl on your belly. So apparently the serpent was talking, thinking, and walking. Okay? And eating good food. Mm -hmm. Because now you're going to eat dust. It's just really fascinating.
1: I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pangs or sorrow in childbirth exceedingly great.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you, Ruth. That pangs, the word is, now this is so much fun. It's ichiban. Go ahead and say ichiban. Ichiban. This word is going to be huge in the story and going forward. Ichiban means sorrow. You, I will make your sorrow in, in giving birth and raising a child. It's all included. It's not, because if you're like, oh, physical pain is what's being given here. There was physical pain. No, 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 no. That's going to be, there's going to be more that's great, but it's sorrow. Sorrow, which is a big deal in the story.
1: In pain or sorrow, you shall bring forth. And
0: that word is yedad, Leyad, and it's beget. So sometimes when we read beget children, which is this sense of raising them. You're going to experience sorrow in raising your kids. Anybody, parent, have any bit of heartache when you watch your kids do stuff and you're like, Ugh. Sometimes, yeah.
1: Sometimes. <laughs>
0: Sometimes you just take a nap and we'll see what happens. (laughs) All right.
1: Okay, sorry. You shall bring forth or beget children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you.
0: That's a whole six-week course. Mm -hmm. Um, Ridiculous.
1: And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice whole of your wife
0: rather than the divine's voice
1: and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil.
0: Itziban, in sorrow.
1: You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the fields.
0: You'd be a vegetarian. Mm.
1: By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and clothed them.
0: Now, here the divine has, is that where we're gonna cut off?
1: My contract is over, yes. Your contract
0: is over, okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, thank you, fantastic. Now, here's the thing, the divine in this part has removed the frail patch together fig leaves and has covered their nakedness with a complete full covering. Right, skins? Now this is interesting, this creates the origin for ancient people offering animal sacrifices to honor the God who covers their sins. They'll go ahead from here and they will do animal sacrifices And it provides a metaphor, now we jump to the life of Jesus taking up the original vocation of humanity, fulfilling it completely, then with his death he covers all the ways in which humanity missed the mark, redeeming them. And in his resurrection initiates a new creation, and all of this is symbolized and pictured here in the beginning. You see the story is bigger, much bigger. Then the, oh, we do have a little more reading, but that's okay. Then the Lord God said, see, and, uh, the, oh, we do, it's a, great. See, the humans have become like one of us. Well, this has happened now. Knowing, circle that good and evil, and now they might reach out their hands and take also from the tree of life, which they were never commanded, they didn't, they could, the whole time they could eat from that tree, right? Tree of life. Now, now we can't, um, take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent them forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which they were taken. He drove out the humans and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to to guard the way to the tree of life. That word, which is so important now, the word knowing is the same word found in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Hebrew, the tree is called etz, Heda, et, Hedeat tov, Vara. That's the Hebrew. The Hebrew for knowledge is deat, and that re- root word, for deat, to get at what kind of knowing is yedah. Go ahead and say yedah. If you know me for more than five minutes, it's my favorite Hebrew word. It's an experiential knowing. It is not an intellectual knowing. It's an experiential. It's to gain understanding through experience. It's a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. We're going to see it in chapter four of Genesis that begins with, the now the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. He knew Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Didn't take a quiz about her and got 90% and she got pregnant. No. It is an intimate, experiential kind of knowing. So the divine instruction to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because the divine does not want humanity to experience the effects of evil. You see? I don't want you to experience the effects of evil. To intellectually discern good and bad is helpful, but we all know that uh, to experience evil or bad is devastating emotionally, physically, and spiritually, correct? That's what throws us. To intellectually know, well, that's good, that's bad, great but when you experience something, all of a sudden it completely knocks you just sideways, emotionally, spiritually, physically, there's all sorts of things going on. Welcome to the why behind the loving command to not experience what we are not prepared to carry. Adam and Eve, I don't want you to do that because I know you're not ready to hold that kind of responsibility. Because it says now they will be like God. Now you will hold some of that experience that God can handle, you cannot. Are you with me? Does it make more sense, I hope? The divine is not withholding, rather the God, this God is protecting, is what's going on here. It's a big difference. Because humanity made the choice to indulge in bad battle, or e- battle evil, they now experience the disruption of shalom, which is the wholeness or completeness of life with the divine. The recognition of disrupting shalom leads to shame. And that leads to a whole new view of nakedness. So now they have a whole different perspective on nakedness than they had initially an innocent view of nakedness. They were fine. But now that they have this experience of shame, all of a sudden how they view something is different. We know this as humans, correct? You experience something and it changes you. You can't unsee it. You can't unlearn it. You can't untaste something you've tasted. And now that will direct how you go forward, correct? Now we see what's going on here. So the divine says, I can't have you eat from the tree of life now and live forever in this brokenness. Don't want that. So, what's really fascinating, and once again is connected to, now I want to tie some clouds together, the central story of the Hebrew scripture is how the divine loves, protects, and guides humanity. The text says that this cherubim, right, cherubim, guard the tree of life, which is understood to offer life eternal. There is only one other place in the Torah that we have the uh, appearance of cherubim. It's in the book of Exodus, the rescued Hebrew people are instructed to construct a container called an ark for which they are instructed to, Exodus 25, 16, says this, Then put the, in the ark the what? The tablets of the covenant law, what we know as the Ten Commandments, the instructions of God, which I will give you. That is the Torah, the Ten Commandments that summarize the 613 commandments of the divine. So they're put in this box called an ark, and then they are instructed to make a cover that goes like this. Make an atonement cover of pure gold and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. And this ends up looking like this. This is a picture of what it looks like. So you have the cherubim that sit on top of the cover, and they extend towards each other, and they're essentially doing a couple things. They're both guarding and they're guiding to the Torah. They're protecting it, but they're also guiding people. Here is the commandments. Here are your instructions. And it carries the meaning of this. So let's get at the meaning of the next scripture. There... Where are these cherubim? I will meet with you, the divine says, and from above the atoning cover, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about every commandment that I will give you for the children of Israel. I will meet with you in this place and be your instruction giver. I will guide you and be your truth. In the gospel of John, this is a side note, gospel of John, in the resurrection story, only the gospel of John, he says there are two, Two angels that appear, one at the foot and one at the head of where Jesus was. What does John give you a picture of? He gives you a picture of the cherubim over the ark and saying, oh, you're looking for the one who is the word, who is the instructions of God. He's not dead. He's alive. That's the picture you're given. You see how the story is bigger. So, once again, the divine is with the people instructing them the way of life, which is exactly how the Hebrew people will come to understand what these instructions, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, all of these all, it comes to symbolize and lead to this. Then in Proverbs, this book of wisdom, chapter 3, verse 18, she, wisdom or Torah is how they do, is what? Oh, interesting, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Choosing the instructions of the divine, which is a picture of humanity being held in communion with the divine, is the guide for humanity participating with the divine and restoring, renewing, and reconciling all that has been disrupted and corrupted. In the Garden of Eden, humanity is given the choice between life The tree of life in which they were not prohibited from eating or from experiencing, or you can choose the experience of death, which is the consequences of evil. So what is the central story in the Hebrew scriptures? The Exodus. How does Genesis 1, 2, and 3 function as a preface for the central story? Thanks for asking, good question. After being rescued from slavery in Egypt and having received Torah, the instructions of the divine, Moses then goes to the people and offers them a choice of whether they will walk with the divine or they will choose a different path. And he says this, Moses speaking to the people, See, I have set before you today what? Life and tov. I have set before life and tov and... Death and evil. What I am commanding you today is to love Adonai, your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his mitzvot, that's commands, s- statutes and ordinances. Then you will what? If you do this follow these instructions, you'll live and multiply. In the beginning in Genesis, they were told to what? Be fruitful and multiply. Live with me and Multiply. And bless Adonai, your God, who will bless you in the land you are going to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not what? Listen, but are drawn away and bow down to other gods and worship them. I tell you today that you will what? Certainly perish. I call the heavens and the earth to witness. You see Genesis 1 and 2? Who's going to be the witness? Heavens and the earth. About you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life so that you and your descendants may live by loving Adonai your God, listening to what? And clinging to him for he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell on the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Esau, and to Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. woo Moses, just there in that little speech to the people, summarized Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. Here's a choice before you. Life and tov. Death and evil. Which are you going to choose? Are you going to listen to the voice of the divine, or are you going to listen to other voices again and follow that? A summary. From the beginning, humanity has been given the choice of tov or chaos. Life or death. Walking with the divine or walking your own way. So when we get to Jesus, he is doing so much more than just covering our sin. Jesus' life is taking up humanity's original vocation, choosing rightly which humanity chose wrongly, then Jesus absorbs and buries death, which is no longer a barrier to the tree of life. In the book of uh, Revelation, what's in there? The tree of life. In his resurrection, Jesus initiates a new creation, which is found as the restoration and renewal of the divine's good creation. This is huge for the story we are telling and how we are to understand the purpose and the mission of the church. To be a unified community that chooses to participate with the divine in the great restoration project. To choose to participate in the eternal life to the full tree of life rather than choosing the experience of death and evil. That's a much bigger story and a better story than simply intellectually agreeing to some ideas about God and then sitting in a waiting room until we get out of here. Can you see how this story is bigger, bigger, and much better? I hope. So what will we choose? Life or death? Walking with the divine or walking our own way? This is all leading up to a question for us. Why did we even structure the gathering this way? Because we're going to then have the invitation, how will we respond? Will we respond in worship, acknowledgement, love, adoration for the divine, or will we do our own thing? Well, we wanted to kind of set the gathering to say, let's dig into the text, see what's inviting us into here, and then let's respond with our hearts open, minds open, and our voices extended to the one who loves us and has invited us to walk with the divine. Are you with me? I hope Genesis 3 is bigger, better, and fits into the bigger story, the whole story, a whole lot more. That's a lot. And we didn't even touch on so many things. I mean, we just got to the serpent and stuff. We need to address some of that stuff. Address some of it. But it's something. So this is our invitation. Uh, If, hey, Eli, do you want to grab the kiddos? And you can can invite them down. Uh, I want to say a word of prayer, and then I'm going to invite us to respond in uh, some uh, worship uh, through singing, uh, just to kind of reflect Reflect, and if you have questions, uh, I'd love it if you wrote them down, if you emailed or whatever. I hope you have lots of questions uh, and that we'll continue to wrestle with this. Um, Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I bless you for loving us so very much. God, that you invite us into life, life to the full. Tove your goodness, excuse me, to walk with you in that goodness. We are given choice. Choose you. Choose your instructions, your guidance to walk in your ways. Or we can choose our own thing. Do our own thing. It's, God, uh, we have these desires and these passions, but you have gifted us with intellect, with discernment, with a whole way of going about looking at desire. That can be done, used, stepped into in good ways. Ways that are good news for all. And God, we can choose selfishly. We can choose... in a way that leads to all sorts of layers of death. So God, I pray that you will continue to nudge us. Speak to us. Whisper, yell, shout, elbow, wink, nudge. Grab us by the shoulders. Wake us up that we may choose you, walk with you, and taste and experience life, true life, life to the full. We bless you, God, for this invitation. We bless you for the opportunity to walk with you and to be with you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.